0: And I think one of the reasons we don't listen and act on those taps and the whisper that turns into a roar is because so many people very, very sadly have a belief that they're not worth taking care of. So our beliefs are created from repetitive thoughts, and if you've thought over and over again that you're not worth taking care of or some version of that, you will literally believe it. And there's a part of our brain called the reticular activating system that just goes looking for evidence of what we believe is true. So we, it's usually unconscious, but we usually find evidence that we're not worth taking care of. We find evidence of that everywhere if that's a belief that we have.
1: Welcome to the Self Love Podcast, the show that helps crack open your heart and inspire a deeper regard for your own well-being and happiness. Proudly brought to you by 28 Essentials. Here's your host, the gorgeous Kim Morrison. Welcome to the Self Love Podcast. Oh my gosh, if you only knew how excited I am to bring this beautiful guest to you here today. I had a dream one day of being in contact with and speaking on stage with the amazing Dr. Libby Weaver. She is an internationally acclaimed nutritional biochemist. She's an author of over 13 books, and she's an incredible speaker. Her mission is to educate and inspire, enhancing people's health and happiness, igniting a ripple effect that transforms the world. This beautiful soul just has a way of making biochemistry and our physiology and our anatomy and everything and every part of us normal kind of almost easy to understand yet she also has not only this science side but she has a very esoteric very spiritual side to her as well and I am absolutely honored to share with you today a beautiful conversation with one of my mentors and one of the women who I particularly look up to and feel so honored and proud to know that I could actually call her a friend It gives me great pleasure to share with you the most beautiful Dr. Libby Weaver in this week's self-love podcast. And please, if you enjoy today's show, make sure you follow the gorgeous Dr. Libby Weaver on all her platforms, but also give me your feedback. Let me know your biggest takeaway from this conversation today. You can do that on my Instagram page, Kim Morrison, the number 28, or you can go to my Facebook page, Kim Morrison Training. You can also go to thewellnesscouch.com forward slash self-love podcast. I know you're in for an amazing conversation. Make sure you have pen and paper, or if not, just trust your unconscious mind to absorb all of the learnings that this beautiful soul expresses in today's show. Take care, be kind, and I cannot wait to hear what you think. You all know what an absolute delight and treat it is for me every week to bring an incredible guest, but I want you all to know that this particular guest this week is someone who I have, for want of a better word, stalked for many years. I have admired her for many years. I even dreamed of speaking with her on stage and that dream came true. And I am absolutely delighted and honoured to welcome to the Self-Love Podcast, the amazing, gorgeous Dr. Libby Weaver. Welcome, sweetheart.
0: Oh, Kim Morrison, what an introduction. I'm blushing, but you're so incredibly generous. Thank you so much for having me join you.
1: Oh, look, it's such a treat. You really are one of those women that inspires so many of us to live a great life. And I know that you have a massive legacy that you're creating, and I know you have a true passion to help people live their fullest and best life but perhaps you could take us back a little bit. Some people are confused that you're a Kiwi. Some say you're an Aussie. I'm saying we're claiming you in both. Could you just give us an idea of your background? Like what led you down the pathway to wanting to become a nutritional biochemist?
0: Oh, what a lovely question, Kim. Um, So I grew up in Tamworth in country, New South Wales in Australia, and we had chickens in the backyard and we grew a little bit of our own food. But I was really fortunate that my gorgeous mum and dad they would I, I, they would talk to me about, you know, oh, that's an orange and that's got vitamin C in it. And that's really good for your immune system. It means, you know, you hopefully you won't get a cold or a flu. So they sort of had all, always talked to me about those sorts of things, even though we only had a, a little backyard. My dad was really a farmer at heart and he would um, always plant wheat every year because he wanted to see what the crops looked like out West. So I sort of grew up with, that was just normal. That was just how we sort of operated. And uh, I st- I played tennis, was my sport, absolutely loved it, still do. Um, just get a bit frustrated that I'm not as good as I used to be. <laughs> the competitive side of me comes out on a tennis court. Uh, and so I'd always read about nutrition for pleasure, but I loved writing. When I was four years old, my beautiful mum gave me a little tiny diary and she encouraged me to just write something in there every day and when I was four, the only thing I wrote about was how many eggs I collected from the chickens, but it was a great gift because it got me into the practice of daily writing and I don't know if I would have some of the traits that I have today had I not embraced that practice as a little girl it's how I it's how I work a lot of things out it's how I work a lot of things out about myself relationships other people um, is, is through writing very freely so that was a great gift my mum gave me as a a little human but yeah my my nana used to visit and um she was I can see now she was obviously very health conscious she lived till she was 96 she just fell asleep one night and didn't wake up what a gorgeous way to go but she was taking vitamin c and vitamin e supplements back in the 70s and when she'd turn up for she didn't live in the same town as us but when she'd turn up for a visit She um, didn't give me chocolate the way other grandmas gave their grandchildren chocolate. She'd give me a pot of yogurt and the big thrill, she said, you know, and it's so exciting because why don't we put a teaspoon of honey in it? (laughs) So I I can see that I will have been influenced um, by all those things growing up. And uh, so, and I would read about nutrition for pleasure. I was always interested in it, but yes, I loved writing so I didn't really, I wouldn't ever describe myself as ambitious. I was never one of those girls when people would say, what do you want to be when you grow up? I didn't know. I would, I wanted farming, I I sort of wanted to farm, but I never really thought that was possible um, when I was little because I used to think, oh, you know, how could I even, how do you ever get enough money to get some land? Or It was just a perplexing sort of concept to me, but I've always loved the idea of, growing my own food. But when I first went to uni, I studied journalism and communications because I thought I just wanted to write. Uh, And I really I realized very quickly I was only interested in writing about human food, nutrition, human behaviour. So then I started psychology (laughs) uh, again, hoping that um, that would bring to life what I was, you know, learning to yearning to learn more about. But it was a lot of rats and statistics. And again, it was more human nutrition and and food-related, health-related behaviours that I was interested in learning about. So that led me then to nutrition and dietetics, which I instantly loved, and then went on and did honours in that. And it was a big surprise to me that I ended up doing a PhD in biochemistry because I was very much a people person. I didn't see myself as being very good at science. I didn't think of myself as someone who belonged in a laboratory. Um, and the way it came about, I'm raving Kim if you want me to <laughs> you want me to keep going so um when um I was in my final year of nutrition and dietetics, and I was actually back in Tamworth at the hospital there and um I was really fortunate that it was right at the very end of my degree, and the lady who was my boss for my final practical placement she said, I, I feel like you've got this, you can run the outpatient clinic for the last three weeks. And obviously, if there's a really complex case, come to me and I'll help you. Um, but I feel like, you you know, you, you're, you're right, you can do this. So she let me see the patients in the outpatient clinic. So obviously, the people aren't dreadfully sick, they're not uh, in hospital, but they were coming for things like weight management, management of type 2 diabetes, high cholesterol, just stock standard things that, because um, I had trained as a dietitian, I didn't ever call myself that, but that, that's what I was working as. So I was seeing people like that. But during my those last three weeks, I saw three children, all of different ages, and they all had these ongoing health problems that conventional medicine hadn't been able to sort out. And I recalled a lecture I had at uni in my third year of immunology. And he was a guest lecturer, and it was an allergy. The guest lecturer was an allergist, so a medical doctor who'd gone on to specialize in allergy medicine. And so much of what he said made so much sense to my brain. And I found myself using what I learned in that three hour lecture with these three separate children over this week. And to cut a stupidly long story short, all of them got better just with a really simple dietary change. One little child was completely covered in eczema, there wasn't a spare piece of. Sp- you know, a clear piece of skin on them. And within four weeks, that was gone. All the redness had come out of it. All the dryness was starting to clear up. Uh, Just really, really huge shifts for for these children with a really simple dietary change. And I ended up phoning uh, my professor of immunology, who wouldn't have remembered me from a bar of soap because I was one student amongst five or 600 in his lectures, and I said, Look, this is what I'm seeing, and this is what's made a difference. And it's from that guest lecturer you brought in back in 1997. Uh, and I'm applying what I learned from that man, and this is the change. And these kids have had so much medical attention. So, how on earth is what's ha- what they're eating, how has that not been addressed? I was pretty naive. And he said, Look, you've got such a curious brain, you need to do a PhD. And I said, Oh, no, no, I could never do that. I'm not good at science. and like you know, I would need to be with people, and don't want to be in a lab. And he said, "But you've got curiosity and this deep desire to learn more. I would really encourage you to think about doing a PhD." And so I did. <laughs> and I originally wanted to look at the relationship between cow's milk protein and constipation in children, um, because it can be that can be a really big deal. And um, very sadly, I I couldn't get ethics approval for it, which we won't go down that rabbit hole because that's a big can of worms but the way i ended up doing my phd working with children with autism and uh the final part of my little story <laughs> um comes about through a really um serendipitous hilarious little piece of my life where the the my dear friend who'd been my flatmate through my undergraduate years at uni she was studying to be an art teacher and i was doing nutrition and dietetics and she so i was at uni for about 35 face-to-face hours in a week and she went for eight hours a week (laughs) and um, she always used to say to me I don't read I look at pictures I don't read don't ever give me anything to read and I'm allowed to just look at the pictures because I'm studying to be an art teacher so she certainly never read the paper and anyway when we I went on to do my PhD and she moved to Melbourne and lo and behold one day she sends me in the post a cutting a newspaper clipping And her boyfriend at the time would read the newspaper and that's how she's seen it because she would never buy a newspaper. And she certainly would never read one. And she has fabulous handwriting and written in her fabulous handwriting all over this newspaper cutting. She'd written me a little note and we had this silly turn of phrase when we were at uni together. If I liked a boy and he didn't like me back, she used to just say, oh, just don't worry. He has a brain disorder. That was just her throwaway comment to try to make me feel better. (laughs) But uh, this heading in the newspaper said milk linked to brain disorders. And so in her fabulous handwriting, she'd written me a note saying, this must have been what was wrong with all the boys who never liked you. And she hadn't, ever, she hadn't read the article. She just saw the heading and it made a laugh. And so, of course, I then read the article and it was uh, some original uh, research published by a professor called Robert Cade in America. And he was finding fragments of gluten and casein uh, in the spinal fluid of people with schizophrenia and children with autism and I went running into my professor saying I don't fully understand this right now but this is what I want to do and maybe this is why after two years I haven't been able to get ethics approval for my milk and constipation study maybe I need to look at this so I put a we we put a study to, we designed a study and um, we got ethics approval for that first and so that was and that changed my whole world Kim that led me down a path of working with families with children with autism and I learned more in those six years uh, and doing that research than I ever would have dreamt possible and it sent me off in such a different direction from uh, yeah any not that I really was anticipating things but it gave me it was part of what gave me a very holistic view of health and it helped me to I already understood the importance of the gut but it really brought that to life in such a powerful way and it was a ridiculous privilege in my life to work with those families and to have learned what I learned so and then since then I have run my own business I have worked in some beautiful health retreats I've written books and get to speak in all different parts of the world which I love so that's kind of how it happened not through any kind of this is what I want to be or do I just said yes to things that felt right across across my life
1: Well, there's no doubt that we are very grateful for all of your nerdy curiosity, and there is no doubt that there is something to be said for having an open, curious mind. doesn't matter what our background or our driver is, but that seems to be something on a health level, at a holistic space. If we can actually get curious about why we think what we do, why we eat what we do, why we don't do what we do. Do you think curiosity would be a word that you would use very powerfully with people? And if so, why?
0: It is. uh, Curiosity is one of the big guns for me. Absolutely. Kim, you've nailed it. So for example, when I was first working, we were taught that if you just would um, explain to people, encourage people to eat a particular way, then they'd go away and do it. And it's laughable because they don't there's so there are so many emotions and beliefs linked to our food choices and our lifestyle choices, and so it led me to pose the question what, along the lines of what you've just said, why do we do what we do, even though we know what we know? And so when pe- to help people start to dig into this, it might be I'd get them to start to notice their language patterns, so they might say, "I ate too many chocolate biscuits." But what m- most people do after that is place a comma in that sentence and then a lot of judgmental words follow. So I ate too many chocolate biscuits, therefore I'm hopeless, I'm pathetic, I have no willpower, something along those lines. Now, we're not taught to question our thoughts. We're not taught that all of the things that we think aren't true. And so if you never question that thought, it will bec- repetitive thoughts become beliefs. So if we're never taught to question that thought, we will then start to believe that we're hopeless and pathetic and we have no willpower. When if we could bring curiosity to that scenario, if we could say, I ate too many chocolate biscuits and then put a comma in the sentence and say, I wonder what led me to do that, you're going to gain so much more insight with the view to potentially not doing it as often. So when, because when we pass judgment on ourselves or others, we go blind to any kind of insight. Uh, our brain is very different when we're in that judgmental place rather than open to learning which is what curiosity prompts so when we say uh you know i wonder what led me to do that well maybe you were hungry maybe your lunch was really inadequate and you're not eating enough carbohydrates or not not enough fat or not enough protein at lunch and so you physically needed some food there in the middle of the afternoon and that's what led you to eat too many chocolate biscuits so If your curiosity leads you to see that it's an inadequate lunch and you're actually hungry, then let's change your lunch. Or if you're someone who does well with afternoon tea, let's organise your afternoon tea. Let's make some yummy little bliss balls that you've got in your fridge or freezer ready to go there in the middle of the afternoon. Or if when you ask that question, I ate too many chocolate biscuits, I wonder what led me to do that. If you can see, for example, that you just had a meeting and someone in that meeting said something, and it did it actually hurt your feelings, and you put on a brave face, but you 've come out of the meeting feeling judged or feeling like a particular colleague is disapproving of you, and so that 's what led you to smash the chocolate biscuits and so you could think, okay well, did that actually help? Did that alleviate the hurt well no, it didn't okay that 's not a useful strategy to to try to deal with my hurt feelings with my colleague. I wonder how else I could do that so curiosity. leads us obviously to learning. Curiosity is very opening and expansive uh, as opposed to to judgment of ourselves or others, which is um, very restrictive and it closes us down. So I love curiosity.
1: I remember very distinctly when we I had the privilege of attending your Beautiful You retreat, which I'm excited to see are back on the, the menu, so to speak. Um, but one thing that I've noticed, you it's, it's not a mistake that you started with psychology. When I hear what you're saying now, you're going into the thought processes, the way we think, the way we feel, maybe events that have occurred in our lives that have made us believe something and therefore we think it's true. But nothing is actually true and everything is up for debate and everything is a possibility and everything can be changed. It just takes commitment and that curiosity. But I'm really curious from your perspective, how come then in nutrition degrees or dietetic degrees, the psychology side of it doesn't seem to, and correct me if I'm wrong, there doesn't seem to be a big element in that. Is that true? And if not, why not?
0: Uh, so in my degree, we had to do three years of psychology. So it was built into the degree um, to, because obviously understanding food behaviours and food choices is, is part of it. But it was focused more around uh, disordered eating at the time. So anorexia, bulimia uh, and uh, binge eating, overeating. It was focused more around that. And So, there was definitely, we had to do three years of psychology within nutrition and dietetics to get our degree. So, there definitely is some there. I've since gone on and done a lot of postgraduate study in it, though, because it's some, I I felt that I needed to expand my own knowledge and skills and tools to be able to support other people. So, to to truly get to, to outcomes. And another, I think, another really simple way to start to, you know, we can make psychology really complex and sometimes it is but it doesn't always have to be and i think a really great little strategy we can apply to anything in our life including our food choices our exercise behaviors our harsh self talk whatever it is we're wanting to change there's drawbacks and benefits to literally everything it's just that when we like something we're focused on all the ben- on all the benefits and when we aren- don't like something we're focused on all the drawbacks but it's a very it's a re- essentially a very one-sided view of things and I find it incredibly helpful. It can be very challenging to do this, but I find it incredibly helpful to encourage people to when, when they're focused on all the benefits of a particular thing, let's find some of the drawbacks. And, or if we want to change a behaviour, let's bring some of those drawbacks um, to life so that you start to move in a different direction. So that can be, because whenever we say, oh, I'm, you know, I'm stuck in a behavioural pattern, you're getting more out of that then you're not getting from that, so it's making your brain aware of the other side. Is sometimes a very simple little way we can start to change uh, some of our, our our choices.
1: Do you think over time the way food has changed so much? It's not that little garden out the back where you know, I've got a friend whose dad still to this day grows all his veggies. And whenever I have dinner there, he's out the back and he goes, hang on girls, hang on. And he's in his nineties and he goes out and he picks the food and he goes, we've got to eat it really quickly because this is when all the best nutrients are here and it's live food. And he's just adorable. He's so proud of his garden. Yet we buy fruit and veggies at a supermarket that's been in store fridges and chilled and maybe sprayed and had all sorts of things. I'm not trying to knock the food industry, but I am aware that a lot of today's illnesses seem to be um, diet and mindset related. We think that it's a quick fix to eat something from a takeaway rather than growing something or actually honoring where it came from. We seem to be disconnected to our food, pro- um, the, the, the cycles of food and where they've come from. There's no labels on an apple. And I'm just interested from your perspective then, for someone listening to this going, I really do have some bad habits. I really do buy a lot of processed foods. What are some of the tools, tips, or techniques that you would suggest to someone to get back to eating food without labels?
0: So if you think there's 35 eating occasions in a week, so we'll say seven days a week, three main meals and two snacks. Now, some people will eat way less frequently than that, and, but some people will eat more frequently than that, but we'll take 35 as the average. Let's say right now seven out of that person's 35 meals are made from whole real food and foods without labels. If you just include one more real food meal or drink or snack per week, just one more per week, which I don't think is overwhelming for an individual or a family, within two months, you'll be at 14 or 15 out of your 35 meals and snacks at being based on whole real food. And in, you'll, in doing that, you'll have doubled the amount of nutrition going in. You'll have also started to minimise some potentially problematic substances going in, so added sugars and all sorts of fake food ingredients. For example, preservatives are not added to food to help human health in any way. <laughs> They're there to extend shelf life so that that food, that product has more chance of being sold. Now, how does the preservative work? Well, it prevents bacterial growth so that the food um, doesn't go off. But in our in our large intestine, we've got anywhere between half a kilo and four kilos of bacteria in our large intestine. And back at the end of 2018, the research finally showed what I had thought common sense was or were always happening, but research finally showed that just the small amounts of preservative we get in things like, wine and dips that we buy at the supermarket and dried fruit. So those sulfur-based preservatives, uh, when we consume them just in those small everyday amounts that a lot of people do, it's enough to negatively affect our gut microbiome. So when when we think, okay, I'm just going to include one more real food meal or drink or snack per week in the goal to increasing, you know, the number that I do out of 35 in a week, you're minimising your exposure, your consumption of some of those potentially problematic substances that you won't even realise over the long term can be very hurtful to to our health. So that's a simple little decision you can make that I don't think is overwhelming.
1: And that's the key, isn't it? Not to be overwhelmed. Have you been fascinated in the last decade even the absolute interest and research going into the gut-brain connection? And if so, do you think that we think from the gut or do you think the brain is where we think from? What's your <laughs> analogy on this gut brain?
0: Well, both because well, one doesn't operate without the other. And as I'm sure most of your listeners know, Kim, it is a two-way communication street. So I actually still think we know very little about it. I think our understanding of it, it's probably not even 1% of the enormity of what's going on. It's wonderful that We're learning more and more about it, but I still think it's a bit minuscule. But um, I can remember, you know, when doing a nutrition and dietetics degree, you're taught that the only thing that influences body shape and size is the calories you consume versus the calories you burn. And so then lo and behold, when research started to show around 2008, that the types of gut bacteria you have that make up your gut microbiome can influence what calories are worth, can influence... We, we've understood for ages that they influence the immune system. We we've under, we've have understood for quite a while that they produce new, that neurotransmitters are made in the gut. We understand that most of the immune system actually lines the gut. But when when research showed that uh, those gut bacteria can influence what calories are worth, I think it was a, a big wake-up. But it didn't get nearly, as, nearly enough coverage, and I find that a lot of people still don't realise that. So as far as thinking goes... I, I see it more as uh, I think they I think both think and I think they both are communicating huge amounts of information uh, to us. I'm, I go more along the lines of listening to an inner voice and I think some people can f- literally feel that in their bodies. Others see that voice as being outside themselves. But there's definitely we all have a voice that has our back and there's a voice inside us that knows when what we need to eat. There's, there's a voice inside us that knows when it's time to go to bed. You know, when we're sitting there just trying to smash out a few more emails. <laughs> but we don't always listen to that voice. So I don't sort of mind where anyone tunes into that voice from. It's just that voice of wisdom that has your best interests at heart.
1: Do you think then that inner voice, that inner knowing, that inner intuition, is it because of all the toxicity not only in thoughts, not only in our environment, not only in the things we put onto our skin and into our body, that inner voice, you know, I've I've heard it. I've heard the term, you can get a tap, a whack or a big Mac. And so we get these little taps, like it might be a headache. We get these whacks. Oh, I just feel so sick every time I eat that. And then you get a Mac where you're actually hospitalized or you put on medication why do we ignore that voice? Why do we not have a trusting? Where have we lost touch with our innate intelligence to understand that those voices, those whispers, those talks, those reactions in our body are actually a way of our keeping us in homeostasis and healthy?
0: I so agree with what you're saying. And I think one of the reasons we don't listen and act on those taps and the whisper that turns into a roar is because so many people very very sadly have a belief that they're not worth taking care of so our beliefs are created from repetitive thoughts and if you've thought over and over again that you're not worth taking care of or some version of that you will literally believe it and there's a part of our brain called the reticular activating system that just goes looking for evidence of what we believe is true so we it's usually unconscious but we usually find evidence that we're not worth taking care of we find evidence of that everywhere if that's a belief that we have So if we track it back, when we're—if you think about a two-year-old little girl and imagine you're looking at your kitchen window and she's playing happily, contentedly by herself in the backyard, and um, you know she's there and got a pretty dress on and she holds the dress out and she's spinning around going la la la." la—when you look out at that sweet little person, she knows she's special, but there's not a—but she's never separated from that, so she doesn't know. Any different from that. She just knows that she's special. And you're looking out at this sweet little girl and imagine she's wearing a pretty dress and she's just spinning around going, la la la. She knows she's precious, she knows she's special, but it's not a conscious knowing. She's just never separated from that. She it's she she was born as that. But we start to make observations from the looks on people's faces, what they do or don't do across as we grow up. And when we're, and we start to create meanings about who we must be for those people to get those looks on their faces or do or not do certain things, it's just that, and it's because when we're little, when we're young, from an emotional maturation perspective, we're egocentric. And sadly, some people never change. But <laughs> when we're little, we're supposed to be egocentric. And all that means is that you think that everyone in your world is the way that they are because of you. So when they're happy, you think it's because of you. When they're grumpy, you think it's because of you. You have no ability when you're two or four to look into someone else's world and see that they're grumpy because they've just been made redundant and they don't know how on earth they're going to pay for your education, for example. So we think it's because of us. And so when we are at such a young age and we feel in our physiology, we feel uncomfortable or uncertain, or we might feel frightened when there's when the consistency of a pattern of behavior in the people who give us food and clothing and shelter when that when their pattern changes and we get confused or uncertain or frightened as I said as you raise that beautiful word homeostasis Kim the body and our psychology and literally every cell in our body will work to get us back to homeostasis to get us back to balance and so, in those moments when we're not understanding our parents' behaviour, when we're very young, we've got to, we have to try to make sense of it. But we, because we can't see that they are the product of their joys and their challenges up until this point in time, we, we don't have that emotional capacity at that age. The only choice we have to try to make sense of the chaos that we are experiencing, whether that's full-on chaos or just a little bit of chaos the only choice we have is to create a belief in our own deficiency oh it must be because Mm -hmm. I'm too loud or it's or because I'm not smart enough or I'm not pretty enough or I'm not as good at at maths as my sister or whatever there's just a, a belief in a deficiency gets created but it's not conscious. We don't sit there when we're two or four years old, going, "This is really going to mess me up." By the time I'm 52, can't wait for this one to come to life. We don't actively choose it; we absorb it to try to, to try to bring ourselves back to balance, to try to make sense of what we're part of. It's just that, and so then we so that belief then begins to take hold. And once, if that happens a couple of times, which it usually does we then will grow up and we might you know we're well into adulthood before we start to examine it and sadly some people never either get the opportunity or know that they can even examine that so when we make poor quality choices even though we know better we've got to start to look at those beliefs that are there around our own worth and our own that we and and change the belief that we are worth taking care of the 2 year old had it right she knew we just forget
1: quite sad then, because a lot of disease comes from those negative thoughts or limiting beliefs or things that actually aren't true. I recall a story that you mentioned about a woman who, whose father over in England sent her out to Australia, and she had a certain belief that was not serving her. Could you just tell us that story? Because that was quite profound.
0: Yeah. Oh, thank you. Yeah. I will never, ever forget this lady. So she came to see me when she was 60 years old. And she, when I said, how can I help? What would you like to get out of this session? She said, well, I want to lose weight, but Libby, I can't stop eating cake after dinner. So if your only solution is to tell me to stop eating cake, you know, I may as well leave because I know that's what I'm supposed to do, but I can't do it. Anyway, in she came and I asked her my gazillion questions. And up until a particular when I was still seeing patients up until a particular point in the consult, I would only ask about physical symptoms. You know, Have you got sinus pressure or congestion? Do you use your bowels every day? You went through menopause, tell me about that. Tell me about your sleep, all those sorts of things. And then I get to the point where I'll say, are your parents still alive? And because up until that point, all I've talked about is their physical health. I think people think I'm giving you all my secrets, Kim. When I think when people think when I'm asked that question that I'm looking for a family medical history and I kind of am, you know, is there heart disease or some kind of cancer in, in the family history, but mostly I, what I'm looking for is the person's response to me bringing their parents up because you can see very quickly from their face, whether there's a world of chaos or calm back there. And with this lady, with this 60 year old lady who'd come to me for weight loss, I could see very quickly that there was a lot, there was a lot of challenge back there. And I asked her if she was comfortable to share it. And she went on to say that her mother died giving birth to her and her father hadn't spoken to her since she was 14. And when she expanded on that, she said she grew up in Ireland, literally, she said in the middle of nowhere, we're on a great big farm. And she grew up there with her four big brothers and her father, the nearest Uh, Brother to her in age was 13. So there was a really big gap between the youngest brother and her. But she loved it. She said she was good at school and she helped with the house. But then when she was 14, her father wrote a letter and he put her on a boat and sent her to New Zealand to be raised by a distant aunt. And she never heard from him again. Now, people will tell you their beliefs. People can't, we can't hear our own beliefs because they're tied up in our language patterns but I'm trying to listen for them. And she gave it to me straight away. She said, he loved my brothers enough to keep them. He didn't love me enough to keep me. Now you can understand why she could believe that. However, I believe humans have got beautiful hearts. I know their behavior doesn't always demonstrate that, but I believe they've got beautiful hearts. And so I said to her, what if the opposite is true? And what if he sent you away because he loved you so much? And she said, I've never thought about it like that. And I said, well, you think about it from his perspective. He was already in the second half of his life. You said you lived so remotely in Ireland and that you were good at school. So he'll have wanted you to get a way better education than you were ever going to get growing up so remotely in Ireland. And you were 14. You were probably just about to start to menstruate. And he'll have wanted you to be supported by a female across those years. He'll have thought that that would be the best thing for you. So what if he broke his own heart? and sent his one and only precious daughter to the other side of the world, and you've got to remember she's 60 when I'm working with her and he's put her on a boat, so he's sent her, he knows he's never seeing her again, or in his mind he believes that. And that he's what he, so what if he sent you away because he loved you so much? And, yeah, she said, i would not thought about it like that. And I was a bit bold and I said, well, you've told me he's still alive, so is there any way you could get in touch with him? And she said, yes, I could probably get a phone number. And I said, well, why don't you ring him and ask him why he sent you away? And still to this day, I'm just so astonished and so blown away by her courage. She rang him up and she asked him, I can hardly say this, and she asked him why he sent her away. And he gave her a version of what I just said to you. And so she lived her life in the cloud of false belief from the age of 14 to the age of 60, that her father didn't love her when the exact opposite was true, and so I didn't have to talk to her about cake. It didn't even come up. She just stopped eating it. Now she would have probably still had it when she went out for a cup of tea with her girlfriends, of course. But it was that if, that cake she was eating by herself every night. But we, she doesn't, she wasn't lying on the couch at night going, "Dad doesn't love me. I better eat cake." It's not conscious. It's just that when you know better and you can't seem to act consistently, not perfectly, but when you, when you know better and you can't seem to act consistently on what you know would help you to take really great care of your earth suit, there's a belief there or a couple of beliefs. And I believe very much that our earth suit can be our greatest teacher. It is forever prodding us. It's forever, as you said, Kim, it will whisper. And if we don't listen to the whisper, it will eventually roar at us Get trying to get us to be who we truly are, to get us to be our authentic self. And when we have beliefs, when we have, when we think things that aren't true about ourselves, when we have very polarised black or white, never and always kind of language and beliefs, things can't be that way. And so we get prodded and poked to try to bring equilibrium back, to bring homeostasis back. And so it's um it's one of the most things that I feel so privileged to uh have, have witnessed are those types of scenarios. Because I could have talked to her if all I'd done is say, Oh yes, you know, tut tut, stop eating the cake after dinner, nothing would ever have changed. But she was so brave and and phoned him and also wasn't she fortunate he was still alive because we don't always get to have the conversation so there'll be some people listening who think oh, I would love to think that I could do that but I can't because the person's passed away so we then have to do we have to open to possibility to the possibility that it's the opposite to what we think before we can bring harmony back back to ourselves
1: it's a bit like Byron Katie's work the turnaround how would you be without that thought? It's such a powerful way to get curious as to why we think and do the things that we do. There are so many questions I have for you, but I'm going to change direction here. One of my most favorite talks that you gave was about the liver and the five uh, exit pathways that we have in order to detox. And I'm now curious for you to talk to us a little bit about this liver because it's also connected to our hormones and how we detox and all the things that we do. I've got no idea from a science perspective how to say all of this, but I know it fascinated me about how to look after my liver. Could you give us a little insight into this amazing organ that we all have?
0: Oh, yes, with pleasure, Kim. So obviously let's let's firstly talk just briefly about detoxification because it gets a lot of confusing press. So biochemically, all detoxification is is a change process. So the liver takes substances that if they were going to accumulate in your blood, they'd be harmful to you. The liver takes those substances and converts them into a less harmful version so that you can then get rid of them in your urine or your faeces. So it's a very precious organ. It also stores nutrients. It produces bile that we need to digest fatty substances, as well as detoxify fat-soluble problematic things like pesticides, our own sex hormones are fat-soluble uh so we need and they have to be detoxified they have to be changed before we can get rid of them uh as well so the way a good way to look at it is that there are there are three stages to detoxification but two of them happen in the liver so I'll use estrogen for our example so when estrogen men and women both make estrogen and women make estrogen across their entire lifespan even postmenopausally they're still making some estrogen the total amount though is just it's about 10% of what they made across the menstruation years, but my point in saying that is, we've always got to be able to detoxify estrogen. We've always got to be able to uh, get rid of it out of our body. We don't want to recycle it, even postmenopausally, or even just as importantly, if not more importantly, postmenopausally. So when it, when your body makes estrogen, whether it's made by your ovaries, by your body fat, the body can also convert androgens, which are things like testosterone, the body can convert testosterone into estrogen. So wherever the estrogen has come from, it will bind to a receptor site, an estrogen receptor. And once it does that it, will, it and it exerts its lovely or not so lovely effects, once it's exerted its effects, it then falls out of the receptor site, it's run out of puff, and a new unit of estrogen can come along and bind to that receptor. But when it falls out, when it's run out of puff, it doesn't just evaporate. or or leave the body it's got to be delivered to the liver to be detoxified before we can get rid of it so a good way to picture what goes on is that the estrogen knocks on the front door of the liver and says will you let me in i've got to undergo my first phase of detoxification and that first those the pathways the biochemical pathways involved in phase one detox use all sorts of different nutrients iron is one of them and iron is the most common nutritional deficiency uh, amongst Australian and New Zealand women, particularly of menstruation age, pregnant women and, and children. So, you know, we need iron for energy, but we need iron for so many things to work properly inside of us, including phase one detox. We need iron to be able to produce thyroid hormones. It's a really important nutrient. So uh, the estrogen arrives at the front door of the liver, undergoes phase one detoxification, so its structure is slightly changed. And then we want it to go as quickly as it can straight into phase two liver detoxification, which is a whole new set of biochemical pathways. And to make those run smoothly, we need things like sulfur, which we get from our uh, brassica veggies, our broccoli, cauliflower, kale, Brussels sprouts. We get sulfur from garlic, onion, and shallots. It's also in egg yolks. Uh, we need amino acids that we get from our protein foods to run these phase two pathways. So our nutritional status has an impact on the efficiency of these. However, there are substances we might be consuming over our lifetime that can make these phase two pathways very slow and not work efficiently and efficiently at all. And alcohol is one of the biggest disruptors to phase two liver de- detoxification pathways, which is why alcohol has such can have such a significant impact on estrogen metabolism. But anyway, let's imagine that our estrogen has zoomed through phase one, zoomed through phase two. A good way to picture it is that it has been spat out the back end of the liver inside a sealed envelope and then the bile will take that little sealed envelope of almost detoxified estrogen and it will deliver it to the gut microbiome and in the gut microbiome we have some bacteria in there that are called the estrobilome and they're the bugs that just deal with estrogen but some of those back some of those species can they make an enzyme and we don't need to worry about the big silly word, but I'll say it because some of your listeners will be geeks and they'll like the big silly words, but the enzyme is called beta-glucuronidase. And so if we've got bacteria producing too much of that enzyme, that enzyme can open the envelope that estrogen is in. And so if the envelope opens and the estrogen comes back out of the envelope, you end up recycling that estrogen. And not only can you end up with an excessive amount of estrogen, but it's quite often in a very unfavourable, not healthy form. So that we're always going to recycle a little bit of estrogen, but we want it to be very, very minimal. And so the way that we want to ensure that is by looking after our liver, uh, with by eating primarily whole real foods, by minimising liver loaders. There are some beautiful herbs, St. Mary's thistle, globe artichoke, gentian, turmeric that the liver loves, it loves broccoli and broccoli sprouts because there's substances in uh, those foods uh, that really help support these pathways. A big silly, another silly word called sulforaphane is in broccoli sprouts and broccoli. Uh, so we want to make sure that our liver detoxification pathways are working as efficiently as they can and also that we have a, a healthy gut microbiome.
1: Wow. And you know what, when I hear you say it, I feel like such a geek and like I really understand it and I'm just going to repeat it back to you and then I get stuck. But I, I feel like at an innate level, we understand this. We know when we're eating things or doing things that aren't serving us. Can I ask just a very quick question then, a hot flush then for menopausal women, is that to do with that estrogen and the recycled estrogen or is it something else?
0: So, It depends. The first thing I will always do for someone who is experiencing hot flushes is address their liver. So, for example, if a lady, if someone came to see me and they were having 20 hot flushes a day and they were really debilitating, I'm not going to address sex hormone levels initially. I'm going to focus on the liver and then I'm going to see what's left over. So four to eight weeks of a real proper genuine focus on looking after the liver, eating primarily whole real fo- foods, men ideally no alcohol for the four to, four to eight weeks to see what happens. A lot of women's hot flushes are 100% driven by alcohol alone. Unfortunately, I know it's sad news for, for people, but um, it's just the reality sometimes of, of the heat. But anyway, so big focus on the liver first. And then let's say the the lady then says, okay, well, I went from 20 hot flushes a day to three. So massive difference. And I'll say, well, are you comfortable with that? Can you live with that? And some women can they they feel huge relief, and whereas others are no, I still need to get rid of these last three so then it might be appropriate uh to start to focus on uh either the the loss of progesterone or the loss of estrogen that can be driving the hot flushes.
1: It's a fascinating topic and something I'm just curious to see what you think about this. But when my mum went through menopause, she struggled for a very long time. She wasn't a drinker. So there must have been other issues going on. She was in survival mode. She was raising three children. She had me at 16. So, of course, and when she left dad and her mother died, there was so much stress on my mum and also growing up in an abusive home. So there was lots of that. So her menopausal years were very tough and very challenging. And I remember looking at her thinking, is that what I've got to look forward to? You know, and she would literally have to change sheets at night and things like that. And she looked around at me one day, Libby, and she said, oh, no, you won't have a problem with, with menopause. You're really in touch with your femininity and you're really aware of your own self. I don't think you'll have a problem. And I just sort of took that with a grain of salt. But I have to say, I'm so grateful that my menopausal years have been quite relatively unscathed, so to speak. It is the natural part of humans, of women in particular, to go through these phases. We seem to look at menopause as bad or, or past it or over the hill. What would be your message to a woman who's menopausal or postmenopausal from the heart? What would Dr. Libby say to this beautiful woman?
0: Your wisdom can now express itself fully <laughs> and and consistently, rather in the ebbs and flows that uh, were on offer in the menstruation year. So the wisdom is consistent postmenopausally. I actually think that um, menopause is an evolutionary adaptation to allow us to be of greater service because we lose, we don't have to focus so much on our family. Or I know there are unique situations, and we do. And we can, I think, come back to ourselves and it's a very expansive level of service is what I'm talking about. So that service might be learning more about psychology or human behaviour and then it shows up simply in the language, in the conversations you have with people. So I don't necessarily mean you go be of service and run yourself ragged, not that at all. When we do things out of duty, it's very depleting. And when we do things from a place of authenticity, it's incredibly energising. And I, I think the whole peeling back process the, the the symptoms that we experience they're just trying to make us more of our authentic self and so at menopause firstly if there is suffering i would always so yes the drop in the loss of progesterone progesterone such a buffer to us feeling good because it's such an anti-anxiety agent and a diuretic and it allows our fosters good thyroid function it does so much for us so but what i like to explain in my work is that quite often we have iron deficiency from a very young age because we've restricted what we've eaten we start we produce a lot of stress hormones because we're worrying about genuine stress or perceived stress we start to accumulate fat in our liver from poor quality food choices too many takeaways too much alcohol That then changes estrogen metabolism further. It can make our periods heavier across the menstruation years. Uh, We then become even more iron deficient because of all of that blood loss. Then the thyroid packs it in because you need iron to be able to make thyroid hormones properly. Then you hit perimenopause and you lose the protection of the progesterone because it's buffered you from all of this other stuff that's been going on for ages. And then we blame it on perimenopause and menopause when there's a chance that with what i've just described there's a chance that some people are probably insulin resistant as well one in 2 adults in the western world are insulin resistant that makes all the symptoms of menopause worse so it's all this all these other biochemical changes that can lead us to feel lousy so it's again why i get excited about addressing all those other symptoms because menopause does not have to be the struggle that, that it is, as you just shared, Kim, it is possible for it to be a far gentler transition, not one that is really chaotic and very harsh. And so when we come into those years, um, once menstruation ceases, I've, I my sense is that it's a time for us to become even more of who we really are, to let go even more of the people pleasing that might have kept us, might have sustained us, um, not necessarily in a healthy way across the menstruation years. So there's, there's a genuine expansion and a true ability to serve on an even greater level. And, um, yeah, that, that's I feel that that's um, a really important thing to tune into.
1: Yeah, I think it's so true. And rather than seeing our hormones as a curse or any stage in our life as a curse, I know there's so many topics I want to talk to you about, but I appreciate your time. There are so many books you've written, so many cookbooks, so many amazing, your cards, your programs. Libby, can you shout out to yourself all the things that you have on offer um, and maybe where we can find out more information from you? Um, But in particular, at the time of this recording, you're actually on the road. And I'd really love it if anyone happens to hear this to get the opportunity to hear you. Perhaps give us a little idea of what we can find on your website, your products, your things that you've created, and then, of course, your on the road tour.
0: Oh, thank you, Kim. Yes, yeah, so uh, I'm, I've just started my first live speaking event back since um, 2019, and it's called What's Up with Your Hormones. So I'm traveling throughout Australia across September, uh, sharing uh, lots of hormonal insights. And then for people who don't live in the towns and centres where I'm going, or they live overseas, uh, then I have an online version on October the 4th. So you can read about all of that at my website, which is drlibby.com, so dot com. And on my website, yes, you can see the 13 books I've written. I have a number of online courses. So I have a detox course. I have a rushing woman syndrome course. I have a weight loss for women online course. I've never weighed a patient in my whole clinical life, I've never had a set of scales in my office because I my work, a lot of people believe they've got to lose weight to be healthy and I'll teach you the opposite. You've actually got to be healthy before your body will let go of it. So, for example, with insulin resistance, the, the fat is on the tummy because of insulin resistance, whereas most people get told, no, no, just lose weight and the insulin resistance will go away. So it, it'll give, it reframes things for people. So, yes, all of that's there uh, on my website, which is drlibby.com.
1: And from your perspective, Libby, growing up and all the things that you've experienced, I would imagine the audience will be dying for me to ask this, does Dr. Libby Weaver ever stuff up? Does she ever have bad days? Does she ever have moments where she doubts herself or has that inner voice that questions what she's doing? And if so, oh, she's human. And what do you do when you have any of those thoughts, feelings or emotions?
0: So, I'm, so I, I use it. I don't waste it. I see it as an opportunity to learn something. It's For me, it's a prod to that I'm out of balance, that I'm not in homeostasis, that I've got a one-sided view of something. So I I use the experience. And it helps me to, a question that really helped me many years ago now is because I felt sensitive to others and others' perceptions. I would think, I wonder what's going on for them and that helped me obviously to shift the focus from myself to the other person and to check in with other people to care you know very deeply about what others might be going what might they might be going through and i use obviously journaling has been something that i've used my whole life to to gain insight so i do my absolute best to be emotionally responsible so when i experience a really strong emotion i my choice and i'm not suggesting others do this but my choice is to not vomit that over other people so I notice the emotion and get very clear about it and then I work out what's led me there and I see it almost like a stone being thrown across a pond oh yep that person said that then that happened then that then that and I can see the ripple effect of a statement that might have been made three days ago and now I've got this uncomfortable twisted up knot in my belly and I realized I wrote a book The Invisible Load a couple of years ago and I wanted to change the conversation about stress. And rather than us just say, oh, how do we manage it? It's just how life is. I wanted people to, I wanted, and you know, we, we say that we teach what we need to learn. Hey. <laughs> and wh- what I dug into with that was ultimately we have traits as in T-R-A-I-T-S. We have traits that we need other people to see in us. And, A really healthy, useful exercise, and I've done this many times myself, is how do I need other people to see me? And sometimes you can ask it in that broad, general sense. Other times we get specific. How do I need my mum to see me, my daughter, my best friend, my colleague, whoever it is? And there's no right or wrong. There's just the traits that are unique to you. So really common words that I've heard others say, and some of them are common to me. I need people to see me as kind, thoughtful, selfless, or it might be I need people to see me as competent, in a, uh, efficient, hardworking, and so then the next time you're stressed, pause and consider: Am I perceiving someone is seeing me in the opposite way to these traits? And most of the time, the answer is yes. So we need to fo- we need to cultivate flexibility in how we can handle other people seeing us, and that is something that I am very very dedicated to, and I think in my own thought processes. So I try very hard to catch as because most of the thoughts we think they aren't true. And I try very, very hard to catch as many of them as I can. I won't catch them all, but I'm very dedicated to that and owning that. So when I get that twisted up feeling, I really try to work out what it is. I don't waste it. And I can't always do it in the moment because there's 4,000 other things going on and I'm needing to get things back to other people but I write it down, and I don't waste it, and i don't I do my best to not go to bed, having not got the insight of what that was really about and Sometimes I don't get it on the day; it'll take a bit longer but i it's almost like we understand we've got to train our body if we want to run a marathon, we're not that patient with our minds, but we just have to train our minds, and so I'm very 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 dedicated to that and if I can just say one more thing, Kim, because I know I'm back on one of my little tangents. The work of Daniel Kahneman really helped me understand this, and Daniel Kahneman is a psycholo- brilliant psychologist. He actually won the Nobel Prize for economics, weirdly, um, but he's a psychologist, and he was one of the. Well, he was the first person to teach us that we actually have two thought systems, and I just call them old brain and new brain, and our old brain is partly. Why we're still here as a species, but it is uh it works at lightning speed, it works at warp speed, and it's unconscious, but it generates a feeling, but we don't know that it has generated that feeling, but it works off patterns and associations that we've wired up in our brain over our lifetime to date. But we have a second thought system that I call new brain, and it has the ability to apply reason and logic. And it's a lot slower compared to our old brain, but it's conscious, uh, so we're aware of it. But right now at this point in human evolution, it's entirely optional <laughs> whether we bring it in or not. And so I'll give you an example of it. Let's say you're in, you're at the farmer's market and you can see Mrs Smith ahead of you and normally she'd have a little chat to you, but on this particular day she doesn't. And what you tell me happens is, is that she puts her head down and she marches straight past you and doesn't speak to you. In that moment, your old brain goes, what have I done? I've let Mrs. Smith down. She doesn't like me. Our kids are at school together. They've probably had a fight. She thinks I'm the world's worst parent. So in other words, you perceive some form of disapproval coming from Mrs. Smith. When at that moment, so you're going to do that because that's what we do right now as humans. But you've got to, we have to remember that in the next next split second or in the next five minutes, rather than waiting five days or five months or five years before you bring in your new thought system, your new brain, you could pause and think, wow, Mrs. Smith looked like she had the weight of the world on her shoulders. I wonder what's going on for her. And so you think, I'll make her, I'll I'll go around and check on Mrs. Smith. And you make her a cake, a nutritious cake, of course, a real food, chocolate, beetroot, mud cake. And round you go and you see Mrs. Smith and you turn up at her door and say, oh, I saw you at the supermarket today. And uh, I, I was concerned you look like you had a lot on your mind and she might say oh no i'm fine i just hadn't had a shower that day or look i've got this big pimple on my face i was just was hoping not to see anyone that day but if we don't do that we can ruminate we can let our old brain keep us in that i've let her down in that in that perception of that disapproval and it's so so much of our emotional overwhelm comes from what our old brain generates and what our new brain fails to examine and so part of how any any of the exper- any of experiences I have, Kim, that I feel are not in equilibrium, that I feel are one sided or really polarized, I use strategies like that to. It doesn't mean I don't have opinions, but I try to equilibrate my mind, which I can't always do, but I'm very dedicated to that.
1: Such a healthy way to look at life, <laughs> and I'm sure with your closest and nearest and dearest, you can also have the opportunity. Sometimes I think it's good just to have a good download and to let those feelings out and to just be you in that moment and then bring in that beautiful new brain and have some more logic and reality and thinking. Absolutely. The the act then of, of curiosity, in my humble opinion, listening to you and all the years of knowing you is really a beautiful act of self-love. Even these questions here of asking yourself, getting curious with why you behave or eat or do the things that you do or don't you do, rather than beating yourself up, it's that real element of self-love. One of the best acts of self-love is to ask questions or to get curious. What is your definition of self-love?
0: To be who you really are, to be your authentic self and to do whatever it is that allows you to do that. So I have so many conversations with mountains, with hillsides, with trees, with the sky, with the clouds, with the grass, with, with my the chickens in my backyard. I have so many conversations and um, for me that is a profound act of self-love and it's a profound, pri- profound privilege uh, to be able to witness all of those things because my senses operate and I can you know, see them and smell them and experience them and look at them. So nature is a big part of my own personal practice of self-care. And but I feel all of it is um, helping me to become who I truly am rather than living with layers of, you know, what other people might think I need to be or have told me to do or I don't so much I don't really think about those things, but I know they'll be there. So, uh, the uh, yeah, self-love is um for me is just becoming who I truly am, which I believe is big part of what we're here to simply do, <laughs> and we've made it all a bit complex,
1: <laughs> and and perhaps too, just as what you've said is not only becoming more of our authentic selves, but honoring who we are right here, right now. And one of the things that I learned from you in the Beautiful You Weekend was sometimes it's okay to say life sucks right now or it's not a great time right now. And actually owning and honoring that is an act of self-love. We don't have to keep putting on this brave face. You, I just want the listener to know that for many years, as I said, I had a picture of you on my vision board and it wasn't in a creepy, stalky way. I actually had a vision that one day I'd get the opportunity to stand on stage with you and the beautiful James and Laurentine from food matters put on an event in Brisbane. And not only did I get to stand on stage and be my cheeky self and have a beautiful audience of amazing humans that were in that room, but my favorite Dr. Libby Weaver was also speaking. And then we were all invited to stand out on stage. And I think you and I hugged and cried and laughed and, but what was fascinating and this was not planned. We both had on black boots, blue jeans, and a white linen shirt from memory. And I just remember looking at you and people were saying to me, Oh, you look like Libby or oh, are you are you two related? And I was like, Oh, please, I'm gonna take it on. I just want everyone to know that yes, actually via osmosis, touching her, I am related. And I am claiming her as my other sister from another mister. <laughs> But what a treat that was. And it is a reminder for me of journaling, visualizing, putting it down, making it come true. I know that probably doesn't sound very big to you, but it was such an epiphany for me. And I just want to thank you for being so open and so generous and so authentic and so loving. And I just, from my heart to yours, Libby, I just just want to say thank you.
0: Oh, Kim, thank you to you for all of the joy and the love you put out in the world. You are I'm one of the most loving humans I have ever had the privilege of meeting, you emanate it. You light up a room when you walk in. It's a, it's a privilege to know you. And that time we had on stage at that event was hilarious. Yes, you and I <laughs> laughing one minute, crying one minute, it was such a hoot. It was such a joy. And yeah, and we looked like sisters up there dressed the same. It was hilarious. <laughs> I
1: know, I can't wait. What are you wearing on
0: Tuesday? Just let yeah. everyone
1: know. <laughs> um, I, when this goes to air, the day this goes to air, this evening, I have the privilege of witnessing and listening to Dr. Libby doing her beautiful talk around hormones on the Sunshine Coast. So please go to her website and find out where she's speaking. And like she said, if you can't make it, 4th of October, put it in your diary. Make sure it's there. Because 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 this woman explains biochemical uh, processes and understanding the physics and the human biology and all of the aspects of what it means to be human. But she also really encapsulates and honours what it truly means to be an authentic human. That means loving ourselves warts and all, honouring all the strengths, all the weaknesses, but also owning all the things that we've believed in the past and then opening our hearts to new possibility, new potentiality within ourselves. And that really is the gift that I've taken from you. And perhaps one of the other things that I would say is you talk about, and I may have the number wrong, you can correct me, but I, from memory, it was we have 50 trillion cells, give or take a few, um, that make up our being. And one thing I took away from you, and I can imagine looking down the barrel of a microscope if I can look after one of those cells and repeat that 50 trillion times, in other words, honoring the fact that every single thing I put into and onto my body, what I read, what I work on, what I'm listening to, who I am around and surrounding myself with, actually alters every single one of those 50 trillion cells. And I think it was your ability to teach us to look down that barrel of a microscope, but also realize that looking down that microscope opens up another whole potential and possibility of honoring every single one of them it made me fall in love with myself even more it's pretty amazing and remarkable what these bodies do and so in closing I would just love for you to give your final message and perhaps a quote that really means a lot to you right now beautiful Libby (laughs)
0: if if you knew who you truly are, you would be in awe of yourself, just as you just said, Kim. And I, my, my final message is to, to, to let yourself have what you already have, because when you talk to people who are dying and you ask them what they're going to miss the most in the world, they'll say the most ordinary things that they'll miss their partner's face or the feeling of their dog's fur under their fingertips or the night sky. And we have all of that right now. So why not let ourselves have what we already have? Because that's what joy is all about, and joy gives us an irreplaceable depth of energy. We tend to spend so much time pursuing or being down about what's not happening or what we don't have, and I think instead it's some um, it can be so so heart opening to let ourselves have what we already have. A beautiful view, watching your child sleep, throwing the ball for your dog, whatever it is. It's it's such a privilege that we that we get to come to earth school. And, um, and, yeah, so letting ourselves have what we already have, I think, is a really, really lovely way to, to, to love ourselves and let ourselves have the privilege of this life.
1: Well, what a privilege for all of us to have you in our world. And I want to thank you again for all the work that you do, for all of those years that you spent at university, for all of the learnings that you continue to do, and for all the inspiration, beautiful Libby, not only from us physically, mentally, and emotionally, but very much, I would say, all of that encapsulated becomes then a very spiritual meaning for why we're here. From my heart to yours, you beautiful soul, thank you so much for being on the Self Love Podcast.